0: They were dubbed the Miracle Braves, and their manager, George Tweedy Stallings, was the toast of the baseball world. Back in Augusta, he was proclaimed a hometown boy who had made very, very good. Man for man, we weren't a great team, recalled pitcher Bill James, who won 19 games and lost only one. We were an eighth-place team, and without Stallings, we would have stayed there. An Augusta native born two years after the Civil War, Stallings was known by several names. Reporters referred to him as Gentleman George. His players called him Big Daddy or Chief. His opponents called him the meanest man in Boston. Stallings could be a gruff manager. Once in the minors, he went out to the mound to relieve a young pitcher who'd just given up six straight walks. He told him not only to get out of the game, but maybe consider burning his uniform. A few moments later, smoke could be seen coming from the clubhouse, and Stallings sent someone in to get that bonehead out of there. The uniform was saved. The pitcher went elsewhere. Stallings also was ahead of his time in sports psychology, and he played the media well. According to one story, Stallings had several reporters over before the start of that 1914 World Series. He made a great show of picking up the telephone and, as they watched, calling Philadelphia manager Connie Mack to ask if the Braves could practice at his field before the game. Mack politely told Stallings that his own team would be using the field, but offered to see what he could do. Stallings exploded, and as the reporters scribbled hastily, berated his rival for the lack of respect given the Braves. The next day, headlines further angered his players, who went out and whipped the american league champs in four quick games few knew the truth that stallings had already made arrangements to practice at another field before his phone call
1: welcome to good seats still available a curious little podcast devoted to exploring what used to be in professional sports here's your host tim hanlon Hey, now, everybody, what's going on? My name is indeed Tim Hanlon, and I appreciate uh, to no end uh, you finding our little uh, podcast here. We call it Good Seats Still Available, our curious little journey each week into uh, what used to be in professional sports. And uh, we love delving into uh, teams and leagues no longer with us, including, of course, previous incarnations of such. And uh, this week, uh, of course, is no exception uh, as we get into uh, 1914 or so baseball. Uh, yes, it's 104 years or so ago, but around this time, uh, 104 years ago, uh, the what is now referred to as the Miracle Boston Braves. And yes, this is the team that uh, uh, is the early roots of uh, today's Atlanta Braves, for you young whippersnappers out there. Uh, it's about this time uh, in July, sort of post uh, post-July 4th or so, Uh, 104 years ago when uh, the Boston Braves, who were uh, literally sitting uh, at the deep bottom of the uh, uh, National League uh, at that time, uh, had uh, begun uh, to uh, indeed uh, literally uh, reel off uh, dozens and dozens of wins after a relatively moribund start Uh, and uh, literally when. Uh, the National League pennant by the end of the 1914 season by 10 and a half games, literally running away uh, over the uh, then New York Giants, Uh, and then steamrolling their way into a World Series that uh, the Philadelphia A's of that time, the Connie Mack-led Philadelphia A's, uh, were the uh, substantial favorite to to win. Uh, And uh, wouldn't you know it, uh, the Boston Braves, a team that uh, hadn't had a winning record in in, uh, many years prior, uh, and frankly, we're the number two team, if you will, in the, in the city of Boston behind the uh, uh, the American League uh, upstart, uh, Boston Red Sox. Uh, won that World Series in 1914 over the heavily favored Philadelphia A's four games to none. A clean sweep, the first ever in modern uh, World Series history. Um, a clean sweep of the World Series. and, and to win uh, the Boston Braves their, uh, their first ever. Uh, National League championship. And uh, frankly, uh, the the last one until I guess it was the mid-1940s, I think 1948 or so, when they actually won the National League again. Uh, a very interesting uh, asterisk uh, and uh, part of the, uh, the current now uh, Atlanta Braves history. Uh, with our guest this week, Charlie Alexander, who's written, I think, the definitive uh, book about the Miracle Braves. It's called, uh, not surprisingly, The Miracle Braves, 1914 and 1916. Uh, It is published by our friends at McFarland. And uh, uh, many of you may know, maybe if you don't, uh, you saber historians, of course, but uh, for those who are not, uh, should know that uh, Charlie Alexander is um, uh, quite a prolific, uh, uh, not only historian, but uh, writer of baseball history uh, with some uh, very interesting. and uh, well-documented tomes and arguably the uh, sort of authoritative such of such of uh, folks like Rogers Hornsby and uh, Ty Cobb and, and a number of other uh, great uh, uh, sort of uh, recollections and stories and biographies of, of some of the key players of the uh, the earliest uh, era of professional baseball in the uh, early 1900s. Uh, but uh, this uh, is a, a little bit of a, a sampling of what uh, Charlie's work is all about, and it's uh, our little investigation into Uh, A little little chapter of the Boston Braves, uh, this of 1916, actually 1914, right? When they won the World Series and then the two years prior or following, uh, we sort of get into it uh, with our guest, Charlie Alexander, uh, in a couple of seconds. Uh, Some very interesting tidbits. Even again, if you're not sort of a musty old uh, uh, baseball, uh, dead ball era, you know, uh, history fan, uh, I think you're going to find some interesting little tidbits about uh, about the team and the city of Boston and uh, and what it uh, eventually uh, evolved into over the years into now today's uh, modern day Atlanta Braves. Coming up uh, with Charlie in uh, just a couple of seconds. But first, I want to get a couple of uh, promotional things out of the way. Uh, of course, I want to remind you that uh, Audible uh, is the best place on the planet to get an audio book. Uh, and there's no better way to get a, a trial of such by going to our little website at audibletrial.com slash goodseats to get your free audiobook book download. Uh, it is yours to keep. Uh, you can cancel at any time. Uh, once you've downloaded that freebie, uh, it is indeed yours to keep. And if even if you cancel the service and uh, as you know, by now, there's more than 180 plus thousand titles, excuse me, 180,000 plus 180,000 Titles and growing. There you go. It's more than 180,000. Let's put it that way. Uh, there is no excuse, of course, to not be able to find at least one title uh, to burn up that free credit and get a sense of of what an audiobook is all about. And it's uh, it's a great way to kill time uh, and travel and uh, and learn without necessarily having to strain your eyes. And uh, Audible is uh, by means by all means the uh, the best way to uh, enjoy the medium that is. Uh, an audio book, and again, audibletrial.com/slash-goodseats. That's the place to get your free one-month subscription to the service, a free audio book download yours to keep. And again, a reminder that you can cancel at any time. It is no risk, really, and uh, you'll be giving a little love to the show by trying it uh, through that link. And we appreciate you doing so. Audio, uh, excuse me. audiobooks are great. Good, give them a try. Audibletrial.com/slash-goodseats. That's the place to do it. Uh, We also want to recommend highly our friends at SportsHistoryCollectibles.com. The promo code for that find website, of course, is, wait for it, Good Seats. Uh, Use one word or two, doesn't matter, but that's the place where, as you search for uh, memorabilia and uh, uh, items from uh, teams uh, long gone uh, or oft forgotten, uh, I'm not sure you're going to find some uh, early 1900s baseball stuff there, but uh, there's plenty of other stuff. Milwaukee Braves. uh uh, stuff for sure uh as well as all kinds of other items from all kinds of other sports uh every week there's some new stuff up there and the great photography that uh proprietor dean mitchell and friends put up there every week is just well worth the visit Uh, and of course once you are uh, hooked enough to uh, want to purchase something for yourself by all means please indeed use early use often that promo code good seats at checkout and you're going to get 15 percent off of all of your purchase. That's purchases, he says. Yes, and that's at sportshistorycollectibles.com. and we thank them, of course, for their patronage of our little showgram here. All right, let's uh, let's move uh, into the world of uh, old time baseball. We're going to get into the uh, the nineteen hundreds, uh, particularly the nineteen fourteen or so uh, version of Major League Baseball, in particular the Boston Braves and their miracle season. Uh, and the interesting asterisk in history of this team uh, with our guest, Charlie Alexander. And here is our conversation just about right now. I guess it would really be helpful for, um, uh, for my audience to kind of get a sense of um, perhaps a little bit of your background, uh, how you I mean, you're obviously uh, quite uh, well regarded in the uh, Sabre and uh, other baseball historian worlds. Uh, I'm just curious, before we get going into this story, uh, sort of your background, how you got involved in baseball history, uh, and some of your adventures that uh, led you to uh, the story that we're going to be talking about, 1914 Braves.
2: Well, uh, I'm a native Texan. I grew up in southeastern Texas, southeastern corner of Texas, um, in a little town called China, C H I N A. believe it or not, uh, which was 15 miles west of Beaumont. Beaumont uh, was had, had in the uh, late 1940s and through the mid 1950s had a franchise in the Texas League, which is Class Double A league, very strong Double A league. So, my parents and I saw a lot of games there in Beaumont and uh, Texas League games, which was the closest uh, baseball to us in that day. You know, because the closest major league city was in St. Louis,
1: and I'm uh, 800 and Charlie, miles I'm, away. Charlie, I'm sorry. This is circa what year? What years? So
2: well um, I became a baseball fan in nineteen forty six when the Texas League started up again after it had closed down during the second world war so uh at the age of ten and i you know sort of took this from my daddy, who was a big baseball guy uh i uh i you know got caught up in baseball at the age of ten and uh you know then later on you know i uh read it and talked about it and then and played it through high school and then ended up writing about it. So, uh, it's, it's, it's been, a, it's been a lot of fun. My connection with baseball from, you know, with, from my childhood.
1: So what, uh, what, what kinds of things sort of got you involved in actually, uh, chronicling this was, this, this wasn't your full-time job, was it?
2: No, uh, I, uh, had no idea uh, when I uh, went to college, uh, and at uh, Lamar, what's now Lamar University in Beaumont, I commuted 15 miles in there, and uh, took my BA in three and a half years, and then went on up to Austin and took my MA and PhD in history, and was trained in you know what you might call the more traditional fields of history, uh, and um, then my early career. Uh, I taught and I wrote about the, you know, more traditional kinds of history, American social and political and cultural intellectual history, and uh, published several books, and uh, had a successful career, uh, and then uh, at at a certain point, along about 1981, uh, I was uh, at, at Ohio University, but had been at Ohio University since 1970. and. Uh, I uh, thought, well, I'll try something new, and I'd already, always been interested in Ty Cobb, and I was familiar with his career, you know, again, from the time that I became a baseball fan, I'd read a lot about him, and I thought, well, there never has been a a, a a really good biography of Ty Cobb, there's a lot of, you know, shallow stuff, <clears throat> so, uh, and so I undertook took the biography of Ty Cobb, and Oxford University Press gave me a contract, and I wrote the book, and It uh, was well-reviewed and turned out very very well all around, and uh, I got a lot of exposure out of it because it happened to be fortuitous, good timing, because about the time the uh, the Cobb book came out in 1984, Pete Rose was creeping up on Cobb's career-based hits record. So that Pete Rose gave me a lot, gave my book a lot of uh, a lot of publicity. And I mean, there was a period of a couple of years there where every time Pete Rose's name was mentioned, Ty Cobb's name was mentioned. So uh, that worked out quite well. And I was so pleased with the biography that uh, I said, well, I'll uh, look around for another significant baseball figure that interests me. So I did the biography of John McGraw. And it was published in 1988. And then I went on and did uh, a general history. It was published a few years later. And then I did a, another b- baseball biography of, of Rogers Hornsby. And then later, Tris Speaker. And then, you know, I published some other books in baseball history. Most recently, uh, The Miracle Braves. And, and at the beginning of this year, uh, the half game pennant about the 1908 American League season. So I've been retired now uh, from, from teaching at ohio university since uh two thousand and seventeen excuse me since two thousand and seven and but have continued uh you know to be involved in researching and writing baseball history and uh, and uh, continue to be a member of Sabre maintain my Sabre contacts, although I really have run out of ideas now and i don 't have a current project so i don 't know i 'm eighty two years old I think maybe uh I've written enough <laughs> well, for I a career.
1: I don't know about that. So I mean, I, I need to. You're you're obviously sort of underselling a little bit because uh, you have a, a a prodigious amount of uh, of works out there in the uh, in the baseball field. I mean, you mentioned um, you mentioned some of them, but uh, you know there are um, you know if you're really uh, interested in some of the earliest uh, uh, days of baseball and some of the uh, intriguing stories. And and frankly, that's this is partially why uh, we kind of do this podcast. I mean, it, it's it's all started from sort of a fascination of uh, teams and leagues that uh, somehow, for whatever reasons, either have been previously incarnated and no longer with us, or just frankly just just died, uh, uh, you know, uh, ugly or sometimes uh, inelegant deaths uh, uh, along the way, and it's a sort of, sort of a, an interesting little sort of corner of the world. But um, you know, your your uh, contributions, shall we say, to the uh, to the world of baseball history is uh, is quite substantial. So um, you know, I, I urge our listeners not only to um, as we get into this uh, story about the uh, the Miracle Braves of nineteen fourteen, also look into uh, some of the deeper works that uh, that Charlie has written. Uh, these uh, uh, Rogers Hornsby and, and Ty Cobb biographies, in particular, are quite substantial and quite um, foundational, I guess, to the the overall uh, understanding of some of the uh, earlier generations of baseball stars.
2: Yeah, you talk about uh, teams that have gone, of course, John McGraw's Giants. Uh, long gone from New York, and the, the old Boston Braves are long gone to Milwaukee and then to uh, Atlanta. But uh, no, they, that, uh, the so-called dead ball era, I have some qualms about that term, but anyhow, the early 20th century, uh, I find fascinating uh, in a lot of ways. Uh, and uh, that's, for the most part, uh, that's the period that I've uh, written baseball history in.
1: Why that era in particular, and and what in particular is your your issue with this sort of dead ball term? We've we've had a couple of episodes that have touched on various aspects of uh, of that quote unquote dead ball era, but I, I'm curious as to why that era that era is interesting to you generally, and then what the uh, the terminology uh, issues you might have with sort of how that uh, those I guess two decades or so in the early part of the century uh, were defined or have been defined.
2: Well, for one thing. As far as the, uh, that period is concerned, uh, you have a lot of colorful characters, Cobb and Bagrawl and, uh, you know, the, uh, the Chicago Cubs and Tinker uh, T- uh, T- Evers to Chance and, and so on and so on. Uh, a lot of colorful teams, and it was a much smaller universe in those days. Um, the relations between owners uh, were much more personal. And intimate, and oftentimes very acrimonious. Uh, as opposed to today, basically baseball today is is corporate business, and uh, you know it's it's hard to name who owns which team, you know, uh, anymore. In fact, the NFL um, owners are more visible than the baseball owners. Uh, Jerry Reinsdorf for the White Sox, have been a few exceptions, but things were a lot a lot smaller. They were a lot more personal. And consequently, um, in writing about the, uh, oh, going back in the 1890s and then on up through the early decades of the 20th century, you're writing about a a time when people in baseball knew each other and uh, oftentimes didn't like each other. Uh, so that uh, a lot of that is what gives uh, character and interest to it. As far as the term dead ball era is concerned, my quarrel with that is simply that nothing happened to the baseball after 1900 Uh, it was the same baseball that had been in place since uh, baseball began to be mass produced in the uh, spalding factories back in the mid-1870s and the uh, composition of the baseball did not change until the 1911 season when the cork center was introduced inside the rubber center. And uh, that made for the baseball that is still in use today. But that period of you know the great pitching that we talked about, and it was tremendous pitching. and Ed Walsh and Christy Mathewson and Addie Joss and uh, Walter Johnson and all that, they uh, were pitching the same, ba- the same baseball that people had been pitching back in the 1880s. Uh, and so that's my, my problem with, now there were some other things, the introduction of the spitball most notably the elimination of the foul strike rule in 1901 of the National League, 1903 in the American League, various other changes that took place that made for the pitching dominance of that period then you get in the 1911, 1912 seasons you get a very significant increase in offensive output, Ty Cobb that his all-time high, 420 in 1911. Uh, Joe Jackson hit 408 and lost the batting championship. Uh, and uh, various uh, players had career batting years in 1911, 1912. And then, for reasons that are not at all clear, the pitchers reasserted themselves and continued to have the upper hand t- up until 1920. And then, again, the ball was not changed. But some other things happened that made for more power hitting. And one of the big things was that more and more hitters, uh, you know, Babe Ruth's making all this money, so they started trying to hit the way he did. Well, you try more people try to hit home runs, you're probably going to have more home runs, which is what happened beginning in the 20s. But the term dead ball era is, I think, really a, a misnomer. Now, I'm not on any kind of crusade. To try to change people's minds, but that's just uh, that's just my my way of looking at the period.
1: Well, yeah, it's it's, it's also it seems that uh, you know that uh, people sort of like to put uh, uh, you know eras, I guess, sort of in in neat containers, right? And and I think what you're also sort of hinting at, and obviously you're the historian, I'm more the amateur, right? The, the this idea, frankly, you know, the first, well, I don't know, I mean, looking at the first two decades of the 1900s, I mean, these were very formative years, right? I mean, still uh, f- for the sport. Right. And I think a lot of people sort of, uh, want to sort of conveniently categorize, uh, some of the, the, the generalities, I guess, but I mean, you know, we've talked about in a few uh, past episodes. I mean, you know, the, the, birth of this sort of modern day world series, right. Uh, the idea that, you know, um, you know, uh, the idea of hitting for, uh, for power versus hitting for, you know, or manufacturing runs and, you know, there's a, there's a whole sort of, uh, uh, uh fits and starts, I guess, right? It's 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 not sort of smooth and convenient and and uh indicative of every year over that sort of twenty year ish period, right? Um there's lots of interesting well, that's, that's things right. going on, right?
2: Right. And of course we uh one of the reasons why I think that we date uh nineteen hundred 1900 or nineteen oh one as the beginning of so called modern baseball is that uh the uh American League emerged in 1901 as a competitor to the National League and there was a two-year war between the leagues competition to sign players uh, and then peace came and uh, a means of governance for the two leagues was established and so you know things settled down in terms of the basic structure of the two major leagues and that lasted until the creation of the office of commissioner in 1920 and then the basic membership of the two leagues lasted until 19 uh, until 19 uh, uh, 54 when the uh St. Louis Browns moved to uh, to Baltimore. Uh so that's a long period in which you had no franchise franchise changes uh and uh, so it, it was a it st- long period of stability in that regard and all of that originated from these early years of the century and the uh, the um, developments that took place during those years.
1: Well, maybe we can use 1901 and the the birth of the launch of the uh, American League maybe as a as a as a scene setter for our segue into the um, the Boston Braves uh, conversation uh, ultimately of 1914. But maybe maybe you can give our audience a bit of a sense of um, sort of what this team was before and then now during the American League uh, launch because it, it it's my understanding that. Uh, I guess they were called the Bean Eaters at that time, but uh, you can correct me if I'm wrong. Uh, that the American League's arrival and the Boston uh, team in that rival American League uh, was a very substantial shock, shall we say, to this uh, already existent uh, National League Boston team, correct?
2: Well, that's correct. In, in the 1890s, the Boston and the Bean Eaters, as they were sort of loosely called, and uh, nicknaming had not yet become so formalized, but the Boston National League team won five pennants in the uh, 1890s, dominated pretty much the the National League. Uh, And then um, with the rise of the American League, the Boston American League team raided uh, the National League team and pretty much gutted it and reduced the Boston National Leaguers to mediocrity at best and awfulness at worst. Uh, you know, for the whole first decade and almost decade and a half of, of the twentieth century, you know, the Boston National Leaguers were really awful uh, in those uh, those early years. Whereas the Boston American League team, uh with you know having captured among others Cy Young, um, went on to win the uh, the uh, the first uh, uh, when. World Series with Pittsburgh in 1903, what's called the first modern World Series, uh, and then went on to become a strong team pretty much most of most of the years in the early part of the century, and uh, then in the 19 teens, uh, won pennants in 1912 and 15 and 16, and again in 1918. So the Red Sox, as they had come to be called by that time. uh were the team in the American League uh, for quite a long time after the American League was established. Um, then you have that brief period there where the Boston Braves came on and uh, and uh, won the Pennant uh, in the World Series in 1914 and then had strong seasons in 1915 and 16, which is what most people tend to overlook about the Braves of those years.
1: Well, so let's back up for a second. So the uh, what was the motivation, I guess, of of these players to, to jump from uh, a, a quite successful National League, let's call them bean eaters team uh, to this new unproven uh, competitive league uh, across town? What was I mean, why didn't they stay like why? I mean, why would you it was it more money? Why, what did the, did the team put up a fight to sort of keep the players? I mean, how how was this decimation sort of? How did it sort of unfold, and, and why? Maybe.
2: Well, in the 1890s, the National League owners, uh, having got rid of the other major league, the original American Association, which operated from 1893 through uh, excuse me 1883 to eight through 1891, once the American uh, the American Association failed, then the National League had, had no competition and. The National League owners imposed a twenty-four hundred dollars salary cap, and it didn't make any difference how great a player you were. You weren't going to get paid more than twenty-four hundred dollars a year, and the uh, you know the uh, ordinary players were paid maybe twelve hundred, maybe fourteen hundred a year. Now that was still a lot of money in that period, and you take the average uh, uh, wage earner was making maybe seven hundred dollars a year, but uh, nonetheless, that cap remained in force throughout the 1890s. Well, once the American League came along, the, the, the top of the cap was blown off, and it didn't take very much money to get National Leaguers to jump to the American League. Cy Young, for example, had, had been under the salary cap $2,400. He signed with the Boston American Leaguers for $3,500. Well, that $1,100. Well, that was again, you know, a lot, a big difference uh, in that day. Napoleon Lagerwey, who was the great star of the Philadelphia National League team in the late 1890s, jumped to the American League for, again, about $4,000 or so. But uh, while it, by our standards, it didn't take very much money to get these guys to jump, it was enough. And uh, most of the stars of the National League uh, went over to the American League. There were a few exceptions, Honus Wagner being the uh, one of the big exceptions. Uh, Wagner stayed with Pittsburgh throughout the remainder of his career. But uh, the the National League was very badly hurt by these defections, and no team was hurt more than the Boston National League team.
1: So that that's uh, it's an interesting sort of sidebar. So then, what's left, right? So what what's left of this of this National League team? Because it seems like it it was pretty dramatic, right? I mean, you, you're talking about a team that was essentially dominant in the latter part of the uh, the 1890s, and essentially uh, was almost the uh, direct opposite of that in the as the teens or sorry as the 1900s got going. Um, maybe you can give uh, a sense of uh, how the I guess they were they were um well it's interesting but maybe before we get there uh, it seems like the, the even the name of the team sort of uh went through a few little uh, uh, uh oh yes fits yeah. and starts yeah. before we get to sort of that so i guess i'm really curious not only maybe in terms of the name of the team but sort of what w- what what was left of this team on the field it didn't seem like much
2: no it was uh a bunch of uh, mostly no-name players and uh they uh, they were bad year in and year out, and the ownership changed frequently. And the nickname of the team would, would change with the ownership. They were the Doves during one period when they were owned by the Dovey brothers. And they were the Rustlers for another period when they were owned by, owned by a guy named Russell. Uh, and uh, it, they played in a... Uh, ballpark that dated back to 1894 but it was one of the old uh, 19th century wooden parks and it had a seating capacity of no more than 9,000 or so braves, uh what can be called brave's field and most of the time uh, 9,000 was plenty uh they their average attendance would be around 120,000 a year uh and it was pathetic so it uh the Boston National League team was just, you know, it, it was the poor relation uh, there in Boston. And uh, the American League team was, was the big team. That began to change when new owners came along uh, for the 1912 season. Uh, James Gaffney, who was a big shot in Tammany Hall organization, in New York City, multi multimillionaire in the construction business, And John Montgomery Ward, who had been a a star in the National League in the 1890s, uh, they bought the club. Uh, Ward eventually sold out his interest, but uh, Yaffe put a lot of money into the club, and the most important thing he did was to hire uh, George Stallings to manage uh, the, uh, the team. And he changed the name to the Braves, Uh, People who might object to that nickname now, uh, it denigrates uh, Native Americans. In fact, the reason the Boston Braves were named the Boston Braves was because Caffney had been, as I said, a big shot at Tammany Hall, and he was a brave. His designation was a brave in the Tammany Hall organization. So he just nicknamed the team the Braves. And he gave them, um, you know, various uh, various uh, icons that were attached to the uniforms and the advertising material, what have you, that would suggest uh, the the Braves. So uh, things began to change, and uh, eventually, after the Braves won the 1914 pennant and won and made enough money. Ben Gaffney uh, undertook to build a new ballpark, which, beginning in the spring of 1915, it's amazing how quickly things could be built in those days. And by August of 1915, the uh, Braves were able to move into Braves Field, which seated about 42,000 people. It was the biggest baseball facility in the world at the time, and many people claimed it to be the finest that had ever been built. And uh, so that's where the Boston Braves were until they uh, until they moved to Milwaukee for the 1953 season.
1: Yeah, and uh, and people in Boston or if you're visiting Boston, uh, it uh, from my understanding is that there are uh, uh, some uh, portions still of that original structure uh, that are part of uh, Boston University's Nickerson Field, which is uh, their sort of their main sport right. field and, and complex there. I've I've not seen it, uh, but uh, I'm sure for some of our listeners that could actually be a bit of a pilgrimage, now.
2: Well, what remains is the huge uh, right field pavilion from Field, And that's the, that's the, the uh, stands on one side of the playing field there at Nickerson. Nickerson Field, which, I, th- I as I understand it, it used to be the Boston University football field, but I understand it now. It's just uh, it's a soccer field.
1: Yeah, we've done a number of episodes around uh, the sport of soccer uh, in this country. And, uh, and Nickerson Field actually has a quite a, a, a very uh, interesting role to pl- uh, uh, play in uh, some of the early days of the old North American Soccer League as well, some of the uh, the Boston-based teams sort of were there. It's it's not necessarily a professional standard by any means in terms of size and scale and that kind of stuff, but uh, it's another in- interesting mm-hmm. footnote, which is where we wind up. Uh, let me ask you one last question before we get into the actual on-field performance and, and all that. So w- what is it about Gaffney? I mean, any insight as to why he purchased the team, why he was intrigued, why, you know, given the Red Sox's uh, uh, success uh, relatively uh, in short order after their their launch in 1901 with the American League. Like why was it, he was the third of uh, of a number of different owners right over that short period of time to sort of deal with what is now this Braves franchise like any idea as to why he even cared or thought he what he maybe saw in all of this that could be you know good. Well it's curious because of course he was a New York man uh, born in bred,
2: and uh, he uh was friends with John McGraw and uh, he had been a New York Giants fan. Uh, and, uh, I, I think the reason that he got interested in the Braves is because John Montgomery Ward, uh, you know, uh, talked up the proposition to him. Now, once Ward and Gaffney had bought the franchise, they did not get along at all. And, uh, so Ward sold out, but, um, you know, the two of them had big plans in the beginning. Uh, Ward was, uh, well, I say he's a New York man. He was a native Pennsylvanian, but he lived in New York for a long time. Practiced law in New York, and uh, the he wanted to get back into baseball one way or another. And he wanted he was looking for an opportunity to buy into a major league team. The Braves were available, and uh, somehow he talked to Gaffney, who had the money, uh, into going in with him. And it turned out to be a considerable success story, not not so much for Ward, who left, but for Gaffney.
1: All right, so let's maybe get into uh, what Gaffney and his management uh, kind of took to relatively quickly. I mean, we're talking about, uh, I guess, him taking ownership of the team, what, circa 1912? Is that right? Uh,
2: yes, that's right.
1: So that's not a long period of time uh, to what became an amazing story two years later, but maybe you can give our audience a sense of, Perhaps what was different uh, in this ownership go around for this now uh, newly rechristened uh, Braves franchise from sort of his uh, uh, his his uh, takeover of the team in 1912 to, you know, what what leads to the seeds of what we're going to get more into is the 1914 season. But how did those first couple of seasons sort of unfold? And what was going on maybe at the time?
2: Well, Gaffney hired uh, George Stallings, who had been managing in the International League, the top level minor league, uh, to manage the, the Braves. So Stallings had a long career in baseball going back to the mid 1890s. And he had managed, oh, a lot of different teams in the minor leagues. He'd even, uh, managed, uh, uh, Detroit in the American league in its early years. Uh, so he had a lot of experience in baseball. He'd managed the New York American league team in 1909 and 1910 and had brought them up from being a miserable team, which they had been in 1908, into becoming respectable. And they got into even as high as third place before he uh, had a falling out with the New York owner and with Hal Chase, the notorious Hal Chase, who wanted to manage the team and who undermined Stallings. So Stallings quit and uh, drifted back to the uh, – international lead but he was a highly respected baseball man he was uh, a native georgian uh and very much of a southerner and uh, off the field he was uh, regarded as you know a southern gentleman but once the baseball games began he was no gentleman uh stallings like connie back uh, managed uh, in street clothes which meant that once the game began, he couldn't leave the dugout. Uh, that's under baseball rules. So he had, um, you know, the captain of the team had to do the arguing out on the field, but Stallings would do plenty of <clears throat> cursing and yelling. And he was, he, he was known for one of the foulest mouths in baseball. And, uh, a stern taskmaster. So he inherited a bunch of mediocre players and started to shuffle them around and get rid of them, made some trades that nobody thought much of but that mostly turned out well, uh, got some pretty good players up from the minor leagues, and then he got Johnny Evers from the Chicago Cubs. Uh, Evers had had a falling out with uh, Charles Murphy, the uh, Cubs owner. See, I, earlier I mentioned you know how personal things were in those days. And uh, Evers then, uh, he wanted to leave the Cubs. He was given his release. And he signed with the Boston Braves for a big contract, multi-year contract, which was a sensational trade at the time because everybody thought Johnny Evers was the outstanding field leader uh, in uh, among you know all the players in baseball and all the different teams. And indeed, Evers became a key factor in the uh, uh, in the success of of the new Boston Braves. So uh, Stalling's made some shrewd moves. He got evers. Uh, he had um, a couple of good pitchers that he inherited, Rudolph and Tyler. <clears throat> and then he brought up uh, Bill James from the minor leagues. Who won um, 26 games in his first year? So he, uh, you know, he uh, somehow managed to put together a combination at work. And one of the things that he did, which was unprecedented, but what he did that what was unprecedented was that uh, he began what is later came to be called platooning. He used three different outfielders depending upon whether the team was facing a left-hander or a right-hander. Right-handed hitters against left-handers, left-handed hitters against right hand. Platooned at all three outfield positions. That had never been done before. And it worked. Uh, none of these outfielders, so the six outfielders, was an outstanding hitter. But they were all timely hitters. And um, they uh, so that platooning... Uh, was one of the main factors why the, the breeze became successful.
1: All right, time for me to catch my breath, get a cool, tasty beverage, and uh, remind you while we do so that uh, our friends at Audible uh, are here to uh, remind you that uh, you can get a free audiobook download uh, of your choice from over 180,000 titles. Uh, if you go to audibletrial.com/goodseats and uh, use that link, of course, to uh, try for yourself a free audiobook on us, uh, gratis, if you will, and you will love the idea of audiobooks. It's uh, it's an awesome way to kill time uh, and uh, occupy and stimulate your mind. Uh, perhaps when your eyes are busy. Uh, doing uh, something else. And of course, there are plenty of uh, interesting books to be found, especially in the world of sports and sports history. And I think our audience might enjoy a few of these, of course, including uh, the seminal work by uh, baseball uh, legend Jim Bouton. It's called Ball Four. It is uh, not only written, but it's also narrated by him. You could use your free credit for that book. And of course, as you know, Ball Four uh, centers around the 1969 uh, one year wonder that is the uh, yeah, there was the Seattle Pilots. Of major league baseball but obviously the uh, the background for a whole lot of other observations about the sport of baseball and it remains to this day uh, perhaps uh, one of the most celebrated writings about the sport of baseball uh, in this country of course you can also if you're not a big baseball fan you can go into the world of soccer uh with uh, the autobiography called my turn by johann cruyff the uh, uh late johann cruyff uh, perhaps one of the world's best ever uh, soccer players, uh, he of Dutch heritage, of course, uh, plenty of uh, a great legendary years at club play as well as national team play uh, for the Dutch team, as well as for our audience, maybe a little bit of interest, uh, his journeys in the North American Soccer League in the late 70s and early 80s with the uh, Washington Diplomats uh, and the uh, Los Angeles Aztecs. And of course, if you're into football, uh, there's probably no better book, especially if you find yourself uh, really interested in the sort of deep and rich history of the NFL with uh, the book called NFL Football, A History of America's New National Pastime. It is written by Richard Cropot and narrated by Marlon May. That, too, uh, is uh, an audiobook that you could choose from over, like I said, uh, 180,000 titles. Uh, there's got to be something in there that's going to be of interest to you. And by all means, give it a try. And we appreciate you doing so at audibletrial.com goodseats. And again, you're going to get your free uh, audiobook download. You can cancel it any time. And again, even if you cancel it, you can keep that book as long as your device exists. So again, we appreciate. It. Give it a try: audibletrial.com/goodseats. And now, back to our conversation. I was looking at uh, the 1912 and 1913 seasons, right? And um, you know, from a um, you know from an on-field uh, performance, right? It seems like 1912, right? Uh, Uh, New ownership didn't really make much difference because, you know, they only went 52 and 101 finishing last Mm -hmm. in the National League. And then 1913, uh, not uh, tremendously better, although somewhat improved. I mean, 69 and 82 finishing fifth. Right. So uh, certainly some improvement. Right. But um, nothing I think that uh, would imagine. Well, maybe it was maybe it was some some movement towards the upside that maybe maybe starting to starting to take hold.
2: Well, the finishing in fifth place in, in 1913, I mean, that was sensational, um, uh, as far as Boston national league fans were concerned because the team had been down for so long, but, uh, and then, yeah, it was, it was definite progress. And then stallings got Evers, got bill James, uh, in his rookie year and, uh, things fell into place in 1914. It didn't look that way at the beginning. The, the Braves started out in their usual fashion uh, and uh, in last place. But then, of course, they began to win and win and win uh, after July, after about the middle of July, and you know, then one going away. They went finished ten games ahead of the Giants. It's one of the great stories in baseball history. It's just not only a team that had been down for so long that came on to win a but that the way they did it, they just blew the rest of the league away in the second half of the season.
1: So, okay. So maybe some insight as to sort of why, I mean, you mentioned sort of uh, July or so. I mean, uh, according to my records, they kind of started off, as you said, somewhat uh, uh, right on, right on cue with their sort of previous years of uh, a performance with a four and 18 start Um, and almost frankly seemed destined for, you know, if, if not a last place finish, certainly pretty darn close to it. Um, but I'm just curious as to what, what any catalysts, any any things along the way, uh, say in July or anything during the season that uh, kind of turn things or or is it just simply a, a bolt of of luck and lightning, so to speak?
2: Well, Stallings in the second half of the season uh, settled on these, these three starting pitchers and they carried almost all the load, Rudolph and James and Tyler. And um, they they just, uh, you know, they, they were all three outstanding. Also, uh, Stallings got from Brooklyn, a third baseman by the name of Red Smith, uh, who was considered one of the best third basemen in the National League. Again, he had personal difficulties with Charles Ebbets, the, uh, the Brooklyn owner, and Ebbets got rid of him. Well, he turned out to be a key factor. In the Braves' success in the rest of the season, unfortunately, he broke his leg in the last game of the season and couldn't play in the World Series. Uh, but he was—he was a good ball player. He's you know forgotten today, but uh, in his time, he was uh, a solid third baseman and solid hitter. So, uh, and then of course, Rabbit Moranville was in his third year, his second full year with the Braves. Rabbit Moranville, one of the most colorful figures I guess ever in baseball history. A little guy, five, five or five six, maybe five six on his toes, um, who was a, a slick shortstop, and um, the he really solidified the infield with Evers and uh, and Smith at third, and then the fellow named uh, Butch. Uh, What's his name? I, I can't think of his last name. Right? Just offhand, big guy and good, solid first baseman and solid hitter. So, uh, had a had really an excellent infield. By the time, I would say by July, he had an excellent infield, and then he had these three really great pitchers that year. And uh, the Braves also were uh, had, had a, you know, they, were, they were good afield. field. They didn't make very many errors, and you know for that period. So, all of that is pretty much the story: uh, the platooning in the outfield, the solid infield, and three outstanding pitchers.
1: So it yeah, it seems like that uh, almost like July Fourth of that year was almost like a sort of a if you could draw a line, sort of of the before and after of the nineteen fourteen Boston Braves. It was sort of, it was sort of that date for some reason because I, I, again, according to my my data here, I mean it shows that uh, I mean the team kind of sat at. Um, You know, in the bottom of the uh, of the table, they were I think they were 26 and 40. They had just lost a doubleheader to the Brooklyn Dodgers uh, that uh, that day, July 4th. And I guess they had a game off, uh, sorry, a day off that next day. And then literally from July 6th through, I guess it was the early part of September, the Braves put together a 41 game uh, and 12 loss streak, 41 and 12 in that period of time. Right. Having started at 26 and 40. Uh, and and really became uh, in contention until the the weekend of the 7th and 8th of September, where they actually uh, beat uh, the New York Giants, two out of three, who were the leading club at the time, and moved into first place. I mean, and then, you know, come September, October, they were uh, essentially on fire. And uh, it's an amazing turnaround. And you just wonder, you know, uh, this now gets into sort of issues around baseball, right? So you get hot, you get lucky, you get... um, team starts gelling starts playing well uh, you wonder sort of what you know what other things I mean superstition I mean what what sort of other sort of I guess intangibles I, you, you you wonder sort of came into play to make them sort of coalesce into something that became somewhat of a confident and winning a, winning a, a, a proposition on the field after having years in even the last two years of, of ownership not being the case
2: well of course the Braves in 1914 were an almost totally different team from the Braves of 1913, with a few exceptions. So it was a made-over team. The other factor is that the Giants, who of course were perennial power in the National League, managed by McGraw, the Giants had an aging team in 1914. And a lot of these guys were on the downside of their careers. And in fact, the Giants finished dead last, the next year. So that was You know, the the way they faded in the uh, last part of the season while the Braves just ran away uh, was sort of a harbinger of of, uh, how bad the Giants were going to be in the next year. And then McGraw had to rebuild that team, which he did, and then came back and and won the pennant in 1917. Um, But the Giants were, uh, you know, everybody thought that they were the uh, the, uh, strongest team in the National League in 1914 but it turns out they were not at all they were not nearly as good as everybody thought they were
1: so um uh before we uh, move on to uh, the rest of the season um you, you mentioned this uh, uh quite this character uh, rabbit moranville right so uh walter james vincent rabbit quote unquote moranville um maybe a little bit of uh, insight into him he seems like uh, quite the character i think uh, he was kind of known as sort of a clown kind of character right of, of sort of a, a jokester if you will
2: he was that, but he also was um, a good, solid ball player and uh, had a long career in the in the National League. And of um, course, is uh, was later voted into the Hall of Fame by the Veterans Committee, the Old Veterans Committee. Now, I personally don't think that Rabbit Rabbit Moranville has any business in the Hall of Fame <clears throat> any more than a number of other people who are in the Hall of Fame do. But uh, he uh, uh, he was a very popular figure. You know, one of the things he did was uh, when, Pop, when Pop flies to shortstop area, he would make this basket catch instead of reaching up for the ball. He would catch it at his at his uh, belt, and that was very popular with the fans. You know, he, they 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 love to see Rabbit do the the uh, the basket catch all around the National League. So <laughs> he was just. Uh, he was just a character, but a pretty good ball player, a good shortstop, uh, and uh, hung around for a long time. He managed the Pirates uh, during one period of the 1920s, and he, he was a good time manager. Uh, he enjoyed having a good time with his players more than he <laughs> was interested in doing serious managing. But he just uh, He's one of those guys that... Uh, uh, we, you know, we, we, don't have players like that anymore. They're real characters. He was just that he was, you know, sort of in the, like, uh, later on, you know, Dizzy Dean and Mark Fidrick and some of the other characters who come along, but, uh, they don't come along anymore. You know, everybody is straight arrow and concentrating on his game. And, uh, they're, uh, you know, in interviews, everybody says the same thing now. You know? And so that's part of, uh, Moranville's appeal. He was just a guy that, um, uh, you would pay your money to, to see play, you know, because he was, um, he put, you know, he, he gave you something to watch apart from just, you know, the ordinary baseball play.
1: Well, I get I guess there were fans showing up for the for the team as well, besides just him. Right. Because uh, it's clear the team got got really hot. And if I'm not mistaken, uh, and I'm, I think this is the case, right? They are still the 1914 Boston Braves were the only team or have been or have been the only team uh, to ever uh, win a pennant after having been in last place on the 4th of July during a baseball season. Uh, that's a pretty, you know, uh, unbelievably. dramatic. Yeah. Is that true? That's correct, yeah. I mean, uh, that, that's amazing, right? um, it's an amazing thing, and it still holds up today. Um, yet, that going into having won the pennant, right, going into the World Series, this uh, relatively um, fledgling uh, uh, thing called the World Series, um, they were, they were huge underdogs still uh, against the, uh, the Philadelphia A's, no?
2: That's true. And the Philadelphia A's were one of the, the great teams of that period. Um, they had won the uh, and they won the uh, American League pennant in the World Series in 1910. They would beaten the Giants in the World Series of 1911 and 12. And um, it was basically the um, the same intact team that had won those pennants. And Connie Mack was he was regarded as the greatest manager in the American League. John McGraw in the National League. Uh, and yeah, the, the, the idea was that, uh um, the Braves would have no chance against this, uh, this great team. Well, the athletics were having their troubles. Uh, we haven't talked about the federal league, but the federal league had come on the scene, uh, as a purported major league claiming to be a, a third major league in for the 1914 season <clears throat> and had gone after uh, American and national league players in the same way that the American league had gone after national league players in 1901 or two. <clears throat> and the, uh, the national league was hurt more by these defections than the American league. But throughout the season, as Mac later revealed, the federal league agents were hanging around the athletics and offering them big money to jump and uh the morale on the on the team was was not very good going into the world Series uh, in those days, sports writers, I think tended to attribute more to uh, uh spirit morality, uh no, me, not morality but morale, and also to being overconfident. you know oftentimes when teams lost they were heavily they say well, they were just overconfident and uh sports writers tended to view uh things in that way. In those days, and consequently, the loss of the athletics was well, often a lot of around the riders said, Well, they were just overconfident. They didn't play up to what they could. But uh, they, the, the athletics won the World Series. It, it, they, were not, they were not really a unified team. And um, some of them were already looking to the Federal League for next year and the bigger money. And so all those factors came into play as well. And uh, the the uh, Mac was particularly disappointed with uh, his right-handed ace, uh, Chief Bender, in the in that series. And when he took uh, Bender out of the first game of the series in Philadelphia, uh, that was the first time that Mac had ever removed a player from a excuse me a pitcher from World Series game. Uh, and uh, he was quite unhappy with Bender and uh, with various of his other players as well. Well, after the season, he gave Bender as well as Eddie Plank, his uh, ace left-hander, their releases, and they signed with the Federal League. So there are a whole lot of factors coming into play here. It's kind of an undercurrent of things. It probably did affect the outcome.
1: Yeah, our, our episode 63, yeah. uh, we uh, had a good conversation with Dan Levitt about sort of the Federal League and stuff. But this is an interesting sort of byproduct yeah. right? or or uh, connection, right? Because, you know, you're talking about players who, you know, uh, you know for whatever reasons, aren't necessarily uh, finding themselves to be uh, either uh, adequately paid or their services being sort of appreciated and all these kinds of things. And obviously a very long-lasting uh, set of issues that uh, even – uh, uh dot the landscape even in today's big time big money professional uh, leagues of today but the the idea of the player welfare and, and, and being able to more freely market one's services um, you can understand some of the dynamics there uh, at play when uh, you know in the times earlier where there weren't uh, the reserve clause was very much in place and, uh, and owners were much more uh, solidly in control of sort of all kinds of movements both on and off the field.
2: Yeah, this is true. And uh, Mac's attitude, Connie Mac's attitude about um, salaries, and he felt that he had to keep the salaries low. But he also believed that, well, the Athletics had been in the World Series so many times, uh, and uh, they had um, picked up World Series checks, and after all, they had made a lot of money uh, by winning and getting into the World Series. Well, they had... uh, Bender and Planck, for example, had been with back from the beginning in 1901. And uh, they had been in the World Series in 1904 and again in 10 and uh, 11 and 12, excuse me, in 10 and uh, 11 and uh, 13. So they had picked up those World Series checks and Mac said, well, what are they unhappy about? They've made all this money uh, because we've won. But it's true that... Um, for one of the great teams of that time, the athletics were not well-paid. And Connie Mack was always uh, very parsimonious with his uh, with his players, even when he had you know his second <clears throat> great team in 1929-31.
1: Yeah, so, I mean, there are some that, I, and maybe you're hinting at this, right, that perhaps uh, the... Those, those penny-pinching ways, perhaps, were a little bit of a disincentive, perhaps? Uh, it not only sort of arrogance or uh, complacency, but uh, perhaps it was, uh, I don't know, maybe maybe the players weren't sort of giving their all sort of as a bit of a message, perhaps? Maybe that's what you're hinting at.
2: Well, that's, that's entirely possible. Uh, I don't think that was true of uh, Eddie Collins, for example, the, the future Hall of Famer second baseman, one of the great players ever. I think he always uh, put out everything he had, but he had a poor World Series. And uh, Johnny Evers, who was much, much less of a player than than, uh, Collins, nonetheless outplayed Collins in the the World Series. So I don't know. It's just a case of uh, a hot team catching a team that was uh, down and – it took four games. That's all it took.
1: Yeah, I mean, it was. A, I believe it was the first sweep in a World Series up to that point. And uh, you say hot. I, one thing we sort of didn't, uh, we kind of overlooked is the fact that the, the Braves, um, they won the pennant, the National League pennant, by ten and a half games, right? Remember, this is a team that was solidly in last yeah. place come July 4th and, and one going mm-hmm. away and then some. Um, so let me ask yeah. you, so a couple other little interesting asterisks here. So during this World Series, right? So uh given the the hotness of this team and i suspect some increased finally uh, uh uh love from some of the boston uh baseball fans um an interesting uh little sidebar to this is that they actually the Braves did not play their home games during the world series uh at their home ballpark um maybe you get into that why that was the case
2: well uh, the braves uh, braves field was had been enlarged a bit after that they uh became the owner, but it was still one of the smallest ballparks in the major leagues. And, uh, Fenway park had opened at the beginning of the 1912 season and, uh, seated about, uh, uh 25,000 or so. And, and so it was much bigger than Braves field. And so, uh, the uh, got an agreement with the, uh, Red Sox owner, Joseph Lannon uh, to, uh, to be able to use um, Fenway Park for the World Series. It turned about, in 1915, when the Red Sox won the American League pennant, by this time, Braves Field had been built with its huge capacity for that day. And the Red Sox then played their home games in the 1915 World Series against the Phillies in Braves Field.
1: Interesting. So you're saying that the the South End grounds where the Braves were playing in uh 1913-1914 weren't weren't big enough or or accommod- uh, the accommodations and the the size just wasn't uh, large enough to sort of uh house if you will sort of the uh the uh, growing interest instead of of World Series. So they played at Fenway Park, the home of the Red Sox, and then you're saying the next year while Braves Field was being I guess constructed, sorry, while the uh, when the Red Sox actually won their pennant they decided to actually come to Braves Field in 1915, brand new ballpark, and play their World Series games there? That's correct. Interesting. Now, why would the Red Sox, given a relatively new and successful ballpark, especially one that hosted uh, the World Series, albeit from a, a a renter, if you will, the season before, why would they, was it returning the favor? I'm just curious as to why they would even, uh, would even do that, go to the, the new, brand new Braves Field, when they had a relatively new ballpark of their own and quite successful at that.
2: Uh, I don't know how much money may have changed hands. I'm sure that uh, it was not just a a gift in either instance. Uh, But uh, I I have never run across any uh, publicity on how much the Braves may have paid the Red Sox in 1914 or how much the Red Sox may have paid the Braves in 1950. But anyhow, that's the way it was done, and so that's and you have those two quirky things about the Boston two Boston champions in the in those two years
1: yeah it's, it's it's especially interesting given the sort of somewhat uh I don't know acrimonious or or contentious uh, uh rivalry if you will that uh, kind of started the relationship between those two teams years earlier it's just very interesting to me mhm yeah so um well, here here's one other sort of interesting little uh sidebar and maybe you can uh give some uh, some color to this too so um you know, uh, obviously, in 1919, when the sort of blacks, the uh, the big time Black Sox uh, scandal sort of hit baseball pretty hard. Um, it seems to me that uh, based on my crack research, that around this time, the 1914 or so World Series, uh, gambling was uh, uh, very much uh, part of the mixture, albeit not uh, legally sanctioned. Um, was there any sort of influence of, of gambling in perhaps uh, the Philadelphia A's uh, subpar performance. Uh, seems like there's some whiffs of uh, of controversy that maybe uh, the influence of some uh, untoward gambling activities might have had some some stake in it, too. Or is that not necess- is that not true based on your your data and your research?
2: No, I don't. Uh, I never ran across any indication of that. It, 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 obviously, it was such a spectacular and unexpected development, the brave sweep that they're going to be they're going to be those who uh suspected um that gamblers may have got to some of the athletics <clears throat> but i, I it, it, the rumors really didn't even surface i mean not not they weren't even they weren't even given given much prominence um so no i don't think that uh gamblers had any effect on things it uh it was uh I think things were, were played strictly on the up and up. But um I think the the problem was that the, the Braves, as I said, were so hot and that the several of the athletics players were just not um really uh, up for the series. They uh, it uh, as I said the morale on the team is not very good and uh, it uh the, it's interesting also that Attendance for the Athletics at Shibe Park <clears throat> that season had fallen, even though the Athletics were winning another pennant. Uh, it appears that a lot of their fans had just
1: got tired of their winning so many times.
2: So, so it was not a good attendance year for a team that uh, that won the American League pennant.
1: All right. Well, let's let's talk about sort of the aftermath. Right. So uh, the Braves winning sort of uh, against all odds, uh, the 1914 World Series, their first. I guess, ever, certainly as the Boston Braves. Um, but uh, it uh, was not the beginning of a dynasty by any stretch of the imagination, nor, by the way, uh, was it uh, necessarily a kick in the butt for uh, the Philadelphia A's either, who uh, sort of went on their own sort of downslope, uh, some of it engineered, some of it maybe not so. Maybe a few years of uh, aftermath of sort of what became of, I guess, both the A's, but certainly the Braves uh, after that uh, uh, amazing, uh, a bolt of lightning season in nineteen fourteen.
2: Well, after the nineteen fourteen season, Connie Mack simply tore his team apart, and uh, <clears throat> they went. They 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 had an awful team in nineteen fifteen, and they never were them again until the mid nineteen twenties. As far as the Braves are concerned, they were a strong competitive team in nineteen fifteen and sixteen. Finished second in nineteen fifteen to the Phillies. They finished third in 1916, but actually had a better record than they had in finishing uh, second uh, the previous year. So they, they, they were, they were a, a competitive team. They continued to draw well there at Braves Field. And, um, you know, it looked as if um, they would continue to be a, a good, respectable team in the National League for some time to come. <clears throat> that didn't happen. Uh, Evers pretty much played out. Bill James ruined his arm uh, and uh, various players who had had, you know, career years in that one year in 1914 were never that good again and uh, some of the Butch Smith, their first baseman, simply retired and uh, went back to running his uh, butcher business in Baltimore. So The Braves after the 19 uh 16 season faded and uh, they were not much good again for oh they had a couple of respectable years in the 1930s but uh it wasn't until after World War II that uh the Boston Braves uh were again a a good team in the National League and of course won the National League pennant in 1948 and lost to Cleveland in the World Series.
1: But it took them until 1948 to even get close to or actually winning uh, another pennant again. I mean, that's an amazing dry spell after having won it all in, in 1914 to go just that length of period of time to not, to not even, you know, not even another pennant, let alone a World Series appearance.
2: Yeah, although you wonder how long it's going to take the Kansas City Royals to, <laughs> to come back again after. They went for a long time. Without a pennant, and then you know, won a couple, and then <clears throat> they're bad again. So I don't know it. Uh, the uh, the Braves, yeah, in nineteen forty eight, with Warren spawn and Johnny Sain, Bob Elliott, Alvin Dark, and Eddie Stanky at second base, uh, they were a very good team, and uh, it looked as if they had you know bright years ahead. They set an attendance record for the first time. They pulled over a million people into Braze Hill, a million six hundred thousand at that. And uh but then four years later they were well four and a half years later, by the spring of nineteen fifty eight, excuse me, fifty three, they were moving to Milwaukee. And it was uh, it was a remarkable collapse of the franchise in forty nine and fifty and fifty one and fifty two. It was. It really was what happened to the Boston Braves. And that the ownership remained the same. Yeah, the ownership, Lou Perini continued to be the principal owner of the Braves, and he was the one who moved the Braves to Milwaukee. So it wasn't a matter of ownership change. Uh, I don't know. Uh, it, uh, it, it, that is an interesting story in itself.
1: Well there's no, there's no doubt the history of the Braves is is a very is a very interesting one and I I think um and again I'm not an historian I just play one on television right is the uh if you look at uh, look back it is uh going back into even the National Association days uh, in its sort of more informative years right is the longest uh continuously running franchise in in baseball history um and you know the, to understand if you're an Atlanta Braves fan, or even a former Milwaukee Braves fan, uh, we've uh, talked about that in a previous a- episode as well. Uh, to know some of these little asterisks in the Boston version of this club's uh, 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 heritage is really interesting. And again, this 1914—I mean, you know, uh, very few people, if any, are still around from from that time, of course. Uh, but uh, to know sort of the the uh, sort of the one-year wonder, I guess, of this franchise—that uh, you know, by all accounts. Uh, didn't do a whole heck of a lot much more, uh, you know, in the uh, modern uh, era of baseball uh, than this uh, one uh, sort of scintillating and amazing second half of a season in 1914 to win it all uh, back in the day. And uh, I appreciate, uh, Charlie, your sort of uh, your your recollections of your history and your pursuit of this. Is there anything from from this story, if anything, that uh, that that either continues to resonate or perhaps uh, changed? Uh, people's mindsets? I mean, is there any any lasting legacy aside from the fact that uh, it was an interesting uh, year, uh, both for the franchise and baseball? Or, you know, is there something more substantial to this, uh, to this run of the, uh, the Boston Braves in 1914?
2: Well, I don't know if there's anything more substantial. I would say that uh, uh, as a baseball historian and, you know, as a Sabre member, Sabre dedicated to the study of baseball history, I, it would be a good if the contemporary Atlanta Braves fans uh, would take some interest in the long history of the franchise, uh, going back to uh, the 19th century, and uh, especially would uh, you know develop some awareness of, of the 1914 and 15 and 16 Boston Braves. I doubt if there are a lot of Atlanta Braves franchise uh, Atlanta Braves fans around today. Who even know anything about the Milwaukee Braves? Uh, which is, you know, that's, that's kind of sad. Um, most people um, they think of history in terms of well, there's now and then there's back then. You know, they don't they don't think of the the seamless connection between then and now, and how then effects now and how we ought to understand that but uh, yeah, that's that's all that i would suggest that the the uh, people who uh follow the atlanta braves today maybe should be made more aware that uh, long before the atlanta braves there were the milwaukee braves and long before that there were the, the
1: boston braves All right. You cannot say that uh, you did not learn something this week. And uh, it is uh, partially our goal in life to uh, to educate and uh, to uh, disseminate information that uh, makes you look smarter Uh, as the listener. Whenever you're uh, roped into conversations about sports and uh, if you find yourself uh, at uh, at a game in Atlanta watching the Braves uh, in suburban uh, Atlanta uh, or uh, perhaps you find yourself in the. uh, the uh, great state of Wisconsin, and you're uh, in Milwaukee watching a Brewers game. Well, you can sort of tell the young whippersnappers there used to be a team prior to the Brewers there known as the Braves. Uh, and hell, maybe you're even in Boston and you really want to go way back and, and show your uh, amazing comprehension of the, uh, uh, the, uh, the history of the, of the sport of baseball and just the, the uh, fabric of, of history of the, the city of Boston proper uh, by uh, regaling in some of the 1914 memories and stories about the uh, miracle then Boston Braves uh, of the National League back then. And we thank uh, Charlie uh, uh, Alexander tremendously for uh, being part of it. The book, uh, uh, again, uh, is called The Miracle Braves 1914 and 1916. It is published by our friends at McFarland. And while you're there uh, searching out that book, and of course, you can go to goodseatsstillavailable.com. Search up our little episode here, number 72, and you will find a convenient link to that book as well as uh, some links to some of Charlie's other works. And we've uh, alluded to them before, but uh, some seminal uh, histories about uh, folks like Rogers Hornsby and Ty Cobb uh, and and other sort of stories and teams around that uh, era, 1910s, 1920s, uh, even earlier and later uh, with Charlie Alexander, who is quite a a prolific uh, baseball historian and writer. Uh, you will uh, do well by uh, reading at least a few of those books and uh, we appreciate you clicking on that link on our website to to do so uh, giving us a little love in the process Uh, we also, uh, speaking of love, want to share our love uh, in a platonic way of course uh, with our friends at uh, Podfly Productions in particular uh, the good Dr. Jerry Payne who puts all our pieces together uh, and each and every week makes us sound somewhat uh, intelligible and uh, we appreciate uh, him and Podfly Productions' uh capabilities and of course if you're interested in uh, doing your own podcast thing by all means check them out at podfly.net you could do worse than to uh to work with the folks at podfly to uh, help you get up and running Uh, before we run we want to remind you that uh, again GoodSeatStillAvailable.com. that's the place to go to find all of our old episodes please 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 i beg of you uh it, it, wherever you listen uh by all means please so it could be on social media but certainly on places like uh Apple Podcasts or iTunes or any of the other places you can do so please rate and review us uh, especially if you uh think highly or favorably of us it's the uh probably the best thing that you can do without she- uh, shelling out any, any bucks uh to help the show uh to get us discovered uh other people like you who might uh, enjoy uh this kind of programming uh, we appreciate that it helps us get uh, found and uh, surfaced and recommended. Uh, by all means, rate and review us uh, highly, of course, if you're inclined, uh, uh, early and often, as we say. And we appreciate that. Also on social media, we love when you follow us and uh, tweet and or message back to us. Uh, you can always do that too at uh, Twitter. you will find us at Good Seats Still. Uh, you'll find us at uh, on Instagram at Good Seats Still Available. Uh, you will find us on Facebook as well. as a little page devoted to us as well. And if you want to send us an email. By all means, send us an email, too. You can send that to hello at goodseatsstillavailable.com. Again, if you forget any of that stuff, just go to the website. You'll find all our our good stuff there. Lots more good stuff to come in the coming weeks. Uh, We appreciate your uh, suggestions. And uh, we thank you for listening, as always. And until next week, uh, we uh, bid you a fond adieu. Thanks so much for listening. Bye-bye.